Hello, and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. I want to introduce each, each one of them to you. So um, as you guys take your seats, our, our first communicator this morning is Logan Lippy. He volunteers in youth. Yeah, Julie Sewell, she also volunteers and communicates with youth. We have our powerhouse sixth grader, Mac Monin, bringing the word. Come on. He's not 25, I swear. Then we got Hayden Curley. He's a senior at Marshfield High, bringing it. We, we got Parker, who's supposed to be a senior, but he's in college and figuring it out. He's a brainiac. So Parker Hamilton. And then we have our awesome youth pastors, Duel and Amber, okay? Hey, are y'all ready for some incredible messages? All right, if you got expectation in your heart, one more round of applause. Logan Lippy, you're up first. Hi, my name is Logan Lippy. Like you said, I'm a youth leader here every Wednesday. Now, I had been reading the story of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal for a life group that I'm in. So I figured I'd do that here today, too. I hope you don't mind. So at the time of Elijah, there was many prophets of God being killed by prophets of Baal. They're the bad guys, just a heads up. So basically, Elijah's the last of God's prophets wandering around giving the good word. So God told Elijah one day to go to the king of Israel at the time, King Ahab, and say, gather all 450 prophets of Baal, and I'm going to tell them that we're all going to make a sacrifice. We're all going to make the get it all ready, but we're not going to light it. We're going to pray to our gods, and whoever, whichever god lights it is the real and almighty god. So, don't worry, I'm not going to ruin the story for you. You're going to have to look it up yourself. 1 Kings 18.22 shows, Elijah said to the people, I am the last of the Lord's prophets, and Baal's prophets number 450. In the story, the prophet Elijah is up against 450 prophets of Baal. He has 450 problems in front of him, and he's standing alone. In a way, we can all kind of, we're all kind of like Elijah. We all have problems, such as sickness, finances, or even job security, and it can feel like we're standing alone. When I think about this statement, it also occurs to me that we can also, we're also like the prophets of Baal. When we are, you know, just praising false idols, we tend to worship false idols such as celebrities, money, or other material things. I tend to take my focus off of God without realizing it sometimes and prioritizing money. I basically worship the almighty dollar, thinking that, you know, it would help me with my depression issues or the fact that my anxiety basically ruled every step that I made. But in reality, it was just making me greedy for more money. In 1 Kings 18.26, the prophets of Baal danced and shouted for Baal to answer them. It says, So they took one of the bulls that had been brought to them. They prepared it and called on Baal's name from morning to midday. They said, Great Baal, answer us. But there was no sound or answer. They performed a hopping dance around the altar that had been set up. No matter how much I danced, shouted, or even begged, my money didn't multiply. Shocker, right? So I was more worried about how to get more money than my 
relationship with the God, with our God and Savior. I, it was sad, and I had stepped out of the light of the Lord. But God be uh, great. <laughs> the Lord, through my wife, brought me back out of that pit and, you know, decided to set up a relationship with God again. She volunteered us for youth one Wednesday, and I was a little skeptical about going. Uh, my oldest son had gotten sick, and one of us needed to stay home with him while the other went to church to volunteer. I didn't want to go, but my wife convinced me to go. And I know that sounds horrible. <laughs> it ended up being the best thing for me and got me back into church where I needed to be. When I came back to the Lord, amazing things started happening. I found my new career. I, got, I moved into an amazing house. I was set, and my two wonderful boys came along shortly thereafter. And the best thing, though, God freed me from my own sins and worry. That worship with, that relationship with God also led to a call of ministry. Whether your problems are depression, anxiety, fear, stress, or pain, these are just a few of the, thing, of the problems that we all face every day and we can relate to. But just like Elijah, we are never alone. Elijah knew from the beginning that God was with him. God outright told him everything that he needed to do. It was like a step-by-step -step on how to tell that God is the one true Lord. In Matthew 6.33 it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Just like Jesus when he was about to be arrested and crucified, we also need to look to God to, for guidance and strength. It shows Jesus doing just that in Luke 22, 42, and 43. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. None of us are perfect. Shocker. It's impossible for a human to be perfect because of the sin in our lives. But I, when I recognized what Jesus did in order to save my soul from the torment of hell, my only response, just like all of us, should be a life of worship. Thank you for letting me speak up here today. Good morning. My name is Julie, and I want to tell you today about my job, or at least how I got my job. So like everybody does, I put my application in, and I got a call, and we set up an interview for Sunday weird, right? So I go in to meet with the department manager. Turns out he's off that day, so he can't meet with me. So I have to meet with another manager. So I go in and I meet with them and then go home and I wait for them to call me. While I'm waiting, I get another call for another application that I put in. It's a better job, better position, better money, just better all around. So I set up the interview and the day of, I just get this intense feeling that I need to cancel this. Crazy. I have three kids. I'm a single mom, lots of mouths to feed, lots of bills to pay. Who does that? But I couldn't shake the feeling. So I call and I cancel. Five minutes later, I get a call asking me to come in and get the job offer. So I go in, and when I get there, she says, I can't give you this job because you failed that part of the assessment. Seriously? 
That is what I said as I threw my head back. But she says, but I have this other position. So if you can come in tomorrow and interview, I am sure that you'll get it. So I took a chance and I said yes. So on my way in the next day for the interview, I stop and I say, God, if this is where you want me, then give me the words to say. And I, as I continue walking, the manager that I met with on Sunday meets me at the door and says, I will not be interviewing you today for this position. We're just going to give it to you. Go get the job offer. Okay, so today I want to talk about Rahab. And I don't know if you know the story of Rahab, but let me give you some backstory. So Moses has died, and Joshua is the assistant. And he is leading the people of Israel. And God has spoken to Joshua and told him, it is now time to take the land that he had promised to Moses. So Joshua sends in two spies, and he tells them to check out Jericho. So then they end up at the house of Rahab, a prostitute, you know, shady people. <laughs> so the king finds out these spies are in the land, and he sends men to get them from her house. And she says that the men had came to her, and she didn't know where they had came from. And they had left at dusk before they closed the city gates, and she told them to hurry up, and that she, they could still catch them. But she had taken the men, and she had hidden them up on her roof under some flax. So, yeah, she lied. Don't do that. Don't lie. <laughs> Why not just hand them over, though? If the king had found out that she had lied, he would have killed her. At the very least, he would have put her in prison. But later that night, before the spies lay down, she went up to the roof in Joshua 2.9 and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She talked to the men all about the things that God had already done for them, and she asked them to promise her that she and her family would be safe and that they would show her the same mercy that she had showed them when God gave them the land. She trusted God. She trusted that if he helped the men that her, and her, fam that her family would be safe. So the men made an oath with her. If she stuck a car scarlet cord out her window and kept her family inside, then when they came and took the land, that they would be spared. But God didn't just leave her there. He took her so much further than we could possibly imagine. Her name is mentioned in the family line of Jesus, of Jesus. A prostitute is in the family line of Jesus. Her son was Boaz from Ruth and Boaz. Their son was Obed, and Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. We find her also mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews alongside of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Hebrews 11.31, by an act of faith, Rahab, the Jericho harlot, was welcomed by the, who welcomed the spies, escaped the destruction that came on those who refused to trust God. Also in James 2.25, in the same way was not even the prostitute Rahab considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them off in the other direction. When I first read that, I thought that James was saying that she was made righteous because she lied but that's not why she was made righteous. She was made righteous because even though she knew who they were and that the king was looking for them, she still hid them. And then sent the men off in a different direction so that they wouldn't be found by the king's men. It was, even Jesus had to trust God's will for his life and he knew the plan. He knew that he was going to live a perfect life and then he was gonna die on a cross for all of us. In Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Trusting God is sometimes scary. It won't always make sense, and it almost never goes the way you see it in your head. 
if you have, if I had taken that other job I, or gotten the other position, I wouldn't be here today because I would have never met Victoria who invited me to come to church with her on the first January, on the first Sunday in January. We have to trust that God is good and that his plans are good, even if it doesn't make sense to us, because we only have a limited view of our situation. But as followers of Jesus, we put our trust in the finished work on the cross. Okay, I'll be telling the story of Joseph and his brothers. So Joseph was his father's favorite son. His father gave him a colorful robe, and his brothers became jealous. And we shouldn't be jealous because we make selfish decisions, and we are not allowing God in us the way he has planned. So on with the story. Joseph's father told him to go check on the, his brothers. Uh, so, so he was walking through the pasture, and his brothers plotted to kill him. And Reuben said, we can't kill our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. So he walked up to them and he said, Father told me to report back to him, and they had enough of it. They jumped at him and ripped the robe off of him and threw him in an empty well. And they started to walk off, and they saw an Egyptian wagon and pulled him out of the well and sold him for eight ounces of silver. Two full years passed. The king had two dreams. Genesis 41 17. In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Seven fat cows came out of the river, and seven more scrawny cows uh, came out and stood by the fat cows. And the scrawny cows ate the fat cows, and Pharaoh woke up at this point. In his, he fell asleep, and in his second dream, there were seven heads of grain, and uh, they were beautiful and luscious. And seven more heads came up, and they were weathered by the east wind, and they and the weathered heads of grain ate the beautiful heads. So Pharaoh brought Joseph in, and Joseph said, There will be seven years of growth in the country of Egypt, but a following seven years of famine. So Pharaoh put so Pharaoh put Joseph as the second most powerful person in Egypt. And I thought that I noticed that Joseph had it hard, but he kept his eyes on God, and good came out of it. Then Joseph's father and brothers came to Egypt to buy food. And Joseph saw them and told them, So you come to sacrifice your body for the brother you, you sold? And they go, You know about Joseph? And uh, the, the father was confused. He took off, Joseph took off his hat, and when his brothers saw that it was Joseph, they all bowed down to him, and his father wept and hugged him. A couple chapters later, Joseph's dad dies, and their brothers think he's going to kill him. And, and Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, accomplishing what is being done now, the saving of many lives. Just like the bad in Joseph's life, Jesus being put on the cross seemed like a bad thing, but it turned to be good because he died and rose again, and we can be with him forever. Morn. 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 
So how many guys have you guys been in an accident? Raise your hand if you have. With a semi. Not fun. Not fun at all. My mic on. Yeah. Okay. So about a month or two ago, I got in this reckless semi. Not fun at all. Um, and I saw my life flash before my eyes. And I came out of the car, no scratches, no glass was on me or anything, no bruises. And God protected me during that, that day. Um, and I got out of the car, and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And ever since then, I've gotten closer with God. So three people popped in my head. Um, some of you may know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo. Some of you may not. Um, a little background on the story. King Nebuchadnezzar is a ruler of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar made a statue made of gold, and as soon as an instrument played or strung, you must bow down to the statue. So as the instrument played, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo didn't bow. The king gave him a second chance, and as the instrument played, they didn't bow still. So the king sent them to the furnace with the strongest men that was seven, time, seven times hotter than normal. Whenever King Nebi looked in the furnace, his strongest men perished, and there's four people in there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and God. And all three of them came out with no smoke on their clothing, um, no hair was burnt or anything like that. Jesus walked around them and protected them during that day. So I have a couple points for you today after reading that. Don't bow down to the enemy. First Peter 2.15 says, It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those people who make foolish accusations against you. The scripture tells me when you are praying, telling friends about God, telling people you don't know about God, uh, telling your family members about God, um, live on how God wants you to. Being bold in your faith, helping people out whenever they need it, don't, putting others' needs before yours, and don't, don't bow down to the enemy while you're doing that. Hold on. As you walk with God and people stand in your way, stay with God and your life will silence them. If you walk with God and you tell people about God, hopefully they will turn to your side and walk faith with you. My second point is stay firm. Daniel 3, 17 through 18 says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, but even if he doesn't, we want to, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. God has told me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stay firm with God whenever the Things weren't going their way and never, way, never went away from them. If you're about to go be put in the furnace or a car wreck or any scenario like that, stay with God and walk your faith with God and have him in your hand. He will always be with you. Right. Key scripture for the day, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 6. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commandments that I'm giving you today. From what I get from that reading is whenever you, whenever you choose to walk your faith with God, respect those commandments and preach them every day to your friends or whoever that needs it. For two questions I have for you before you leave today. Are you living for God? Are you reading every day, going to church every day, praying over people's needs every day, putting others before yours, others' needs before yours? Um, and the second one, how are you going to be bold for God? Are you going to be unashamed by his faith? Are you going to tell that employee that 
needs that that spiritual help? Um, are you going to tell that family member that he needs or she needs to learn about God? That's it. That's all I have for you today. Good morning, church. Good morning. My name's Parker. Just a second. Hey, guys. So, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting at work, and I get a phone call from a Rhode Island phone number. And at the time, I didn't know that I knew anyone from Rhode Island, so I declined the call. And, and they send me a text a couple seconds later, and it says, yo, it's Pastor Mark, just give me a call whenever you can. So immediately, I start thinking of every bad thing that I've done for the past month, <laughs> trying to figure out what he could be calling me for. So I pray, and I call him back. And the first thing he says to me is, hey, bro, you're not in trouble, so the coast is clear. But he goes on, and he says, look, in a couple weeks, we're going to be doing this really cool thing. Seven messages, seven minutes. I want you to give a message. And, you know, I'm thinking, this is really cool, but I'm also thinking, what kind of story can I tell in seven minutes? So I decided to tell a story that most of us have probably heard before, and that's the story of David and Goliath. Has anybody heard that? Nice. So David was a servant to King Saul of Israel, and he was a shepherd for his father. Now, the Israelites were God's people, and they were at war with the Philistines, who were not God's people. David's three oldest brothers were fighting in Saul's army, and one day his father asked him to take his brother's lunch and come back with a report on how they were doing. So David heads off towards the battlefield to find his brothers. And when he does, they're talking, and David looks out across the battlefield, and he sees a giant man. Spoiler alert, this is Goliath. Goliath is over nine feet tall with 125 pounds worth of armor and a spear that weighs over 15 pounds. Now, the way he's described in the Bible is meant to strike fear into us. And I know I didn't do that, but that's exactly what happens to the Israelites. Every soldier runs in fear when they see this guy. No one is brave enough to even look at him. But David, being just a boy, he looks around and he's like, what does a guy get for killing him? And a couple of the guys tell him, they're like, look, dude, you get to marry one of Saul's daughters, you get a big cash prize, and you're tax exempt for life. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> a princess and no taxes still wasn't enough for any of these soldiers to even consider fighting Goliath. That's how scary he was. Now, King Saul hears of David asking these questions, and he calls for him to come to the palace. And when David gets there, he says, don't even worry about this Philistine. I will kill him. And King Saul's like, uh, no, you won't. But David persists. He says, I take care of my father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear comes to take a lamb, I go after it. I club the animal to death, and I bring the lamb back to the flock. The same Lord that has protected me from the lion and the bear will protect me from this Philistine. Amen. Amen. And Saul finally agrees, and he even tries to give David his own armor. But David says, no, all I need is my shepherd's staff, my slingshot, and God by my side. And literally last night, as I'm writing down my final notes for today, Aislinn, my mom, is like flipping through the channels on the TV, and she stops on some random show. I don't even know what it was. And on the screen is Ephesians 6.11. Let me open my Bible here. And Ephesians 6.11 says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. And I'm writing this stuff down and I read that and I'm like, oh, I got to put this in here. This is amazing. David doesn't need Saul's armor. The only armor he needs is God. So David goes down to the stream and he collects five smooth stones. He puts them in his bag and he heads towards the front lines. And Goliath walks out to meet David, and he's mad, right? He wanted their best soldier to come and fight him, and they send a boy. 
a shepherd's boy from Bethlehem. They don't even send a real soldier. And he says to David, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And he curses David by the names of his gods. And he says, come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. But David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you. I will cut off your head and then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world, world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here today will know the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. So David is just filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And he's spinning it back in Goliath's face. And Goliath is so mad that without even responding, he just charges at David. But David charges right back and he reaches into his bag. He pulls out a stone. He pulls back his slingshot. He lets go and he hits Goliath dead center of the forehead. Goliath falls to the ground. But just for good measure, David runs over, pulls out Goliath's own sword and cuts his head off. Right. Now, I feel like it's no surprise that David beats Goliath. And originally, my message was going to be, if you're brave like David, you can beat Goliath. But after talking with Pastor Mark and reading more about David, I don't think that's the moral of the story. When I read about David, I don't see myself in him. You know, he was a perfect servant to his king and to his father. I can't say that about myself. He chased after the lion and the bear to bring back the lost lamb to his herd. I've never done that. And he volunteered to fight the giant that no grown soldier was brave enough to even look at. That's not me. When I read the story, I associate more with the Israelites, with one of the soldiers. I'm on the battlefield and I look out across the front lines and I see a nine foot man. I'm running back to my tent, changing my pants. And I'm going to hide, right? <laughs> I'm scared. So if we read this story through this lens of, you know, maybe I'm not David, maybe you're not David, maybe we're just soldiers in God's army. What do we see? Well, we're on the battlefield and we're facing this thing that we can't beat. None of us are brave enough to see. None of us are strong to destroy. But then our king sends a savior down to defeat the very thing holding us back. So if we read the story like this, who is David? Jesus. And that makes Goliath sin. So maybe the moral of the story isn't if you're brave enough, you can defeat your Goliath. Maybe the moral of the story is, look, our king sent a savior down to defeat our Goliath for us. Can I get an amen to that? And if we read what happens after David kills Goliath, we see the Philistines and the Israelites are shocked, right? But the Israelites, they're rejoicing. They're reborn. They're alive. They're freed from the chains of this thing that was holding them back. And they come out of their hiding spots and they're filled with the very same spirit that David used to beat Goliath. And they rush out of their hiding spots. They chase the Philistines out of the valley. And Jesus defeated our sins just like David defeated Goliath. And we're God's army. And we're filled with that very same spirit that David had. We're filled with the spirit of Jesus. Now it's our job to come out of our hiding spots, chase the Philistines out of the valley, and fight for our God. make you feel good church like all warm and fuzzy on the inside I've been like crying from the start of service I was crying in worship first service the moms are all like crying as these their kids are up here and I'm like trying to hold it back in but everybody loves a good underdog story why because they're relatable we like to put ourselves into these characters shoes because it feels good to overcome something 
Anyone in here love a good movie? If it's like a heartfelt story about overcoming adversity, do you silently like on the couch and you're like rooting for the underdog? Me, I'm rooting through the tears, you know? Many of us know the book of Esther. And basically to sum it up in a nutshell, it's all about a young Jewish girl and her rise to become queen of the one of the most powerful nations of her time. However, today I would like to offer a different perspective because I think there's a captivating figure, an underdog, if you will, um, that is instrumental in helping rescue the Jewish people behind the scenes. And his name is Mordecai. So I've got a big story. Hold on, buckle your seatbelts, preach it hard, preach it fast, seven minutes, actually six now. So Mordecai raised his niece Esther, right? Her parents had died. He stepped up raised her, and then later she was taken um, to go to the castle to basically be paraded in this beauty pageant, so to speak, and win the king's heart, become queen of Persia, right? So while this beauty pageant is going on, Mordecai is just sitting by the king's gates one day, just hanging out in the market, overhears these two officers of the king who are angry, and they are plotting to assassinate him. So Mordecai shares this with Esther. Esther, you know, writes it down gives credit to Mordecai, and then enter bad guy in the story, right? Can't have a good story without that bad guy in there. So we have Haman, the king's right-hand man, y'all. He basically goes around telling everybody to bow to him. And Mordecai is like, I am bowing to you. And he's like, oh, no, he didn't, you know? So Mordecai creates this enemy, right, that not only wants to kill him, but all of the Jews. So Mordecai, before knowing any of this, you know, Mordecai and Esther, both Jews, he basically told Esther, you know, like, we don't have to tell. Let's just keep the whole Jewish thing on the DL. You know, we don't need to share that. So he tells her not to reveal her Jewish heritage at first, waiting to expose Haman to make her plea more meaningful to influence the king. It's getting good, y'all. So Haman runs to tattle to the king because Mordecai won't bow. And he's like, you know, these Jewish people, they don't respect you. They don't look up to you. Let's just, let's just wipe them all out. It'd be better without them, you know? So the king's like, granted, like, no thought. Just boom, let's kill all the Jews. So Mordecai told Esther about this plan. All the Jews are going to die. And Esther's like, well, I'm not telling the king. And Mordecai's like, girl, don't think just because the king's making all these googly eyes at you that you're going to be saved. Like, we're all going to die, right? So Mordecai convinced Esther to go before the king to ask for his leniency to save the Jews. Mordecai and his people, they fasted and they prayed that the king would find favor with Esther because in this time, going before the king meant death. Unsummoned, you know, you can't go before the king unless you're summoned or you die. So one night, the king can't sleep, finds out that Mordecai is actually the one who saved his life from the two angry officers earlier in the story. And the next day, he's with Haman. He's like, hey, man, like, what do you think I ought to do for someone that I want to honor? And Haman, you know, thinking it's him, you know, he's kind of an arrogant guy, I guess, comes up with this ridiculous plan to get all bedazzled up in the king's clothes, like ride through the streets in the hor- on his horse. So the king's like, great, go and do what you suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Like, can you just imagine Haman's face? You know, he's thinking it's him. Yet then the king's like, go do it for Mordecai, who he hates. 
like the rage he must have had, I just can't even imagine. But, you know, it just makes the story all that much better. So fast forward. Esther goes before the king. She doesn't die. She invites him and Haman to a dinner. Basically exposes Haman's plot to kill all the Jews. And they succeed in saving the Jews. Okay? So we see that Mordecai demonstrated characteristics throughout this story that we can apply to our own lives and how God wants us to live. Mordecai, he was compassionate to the needs of others. He had wisdom. He stood for Jesus and believed in his purpose. And ultimately, he was rewarded for it. So as I was reading this story, I couldn't help but think like how instrumental Mordecai was in Esther's rise to become queen. Like, you know, man, we could just all really use a good Mordecai in our lives, right? You know, like a pit man, like someone to keep us fueled, someone to tell us when to go, when to not go, when to go left, when to go right. When really, church, it's we could all use the good shepherd, you know? We could all use Jesus Christ because he's the one that shows us compassion. He's the one that teaches us how to have wisdom. He says, follow me, stand for me, bow down to me. Mark 6:34 said he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus himself demonstrated this characteristics, compassion, wisdom, purpose. The Bible says he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He anoints our heads with oil. My cup overflows. His goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mordecai was the ultimate underdog, and, you know, some may think insignificant, but it's what we don't see that's happening behind the scenes as God uses him to bring about the Jews over this adversity and triumph. It reminds us that we can all be called by God, like no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how insignificant you may think, whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's on this stage, like God, let God be your shepherd. Let him be your right hand and follow where God is prompting you to make a difference. All right, I guess I got to follow all that. I'm not sure I can look forward to that. Let me get out of Amber's message because that would not bode well to preach the same one twice. You guys would tell me how much better she is, and I don't need that any more than I already hear. Hey, what an awesome Sunday to get to be a part. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited, um, you know, as a, as a youth pastor. I'm almost like a proud papa kind of thing up here. Uh, even if I didn't preach, I could just sit here and just soak in the fact that I know that they've all done an awesome job. And so... I've got seven minutes, but let's make it 12. Let's see what happens. So we all love a good underdog story, right? You know, Amber's talking about un- loving underdog movies. I love an underdog movie. One of a, a great underdog movie from 2004. It talks about a, a gentleman named Peter. And he, uh, he has a gym that is, that is losing their money, or they're losing their gym because they're back, they're late on their payments. Anybody ever felt that, right? And so Peter's like, we're, he's kind of just this average guy. We might even call him an average Joe. You might even refer to him as an average Joe. And so he has some friends, and one of his friends that comes to the gym is like, Peter, we can enter this dodgeball tournament. Now some of you know what movie I'm talking about. And so he's like, we can do this. If we win, we get $50,000. Peter's like, we're never going to win. 
We're just all regular old average Joes. We can't win this thing. But you know what? Let's give it a shot. Let's sign up. So they sign up. Long story short, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie Dodgeball, I'm about to ruin it for you. They sign up to do the tournament, and it's an underdog story, so you should already know how this goes. They win. They win the tournament. They're just these average Joes. They play, they fight and play this dodgeball game against the world's greatest dodgeball team ever created, and they win. Just like this story, I feel like the story that I've picked out that I want to talk about today, it's about a guy that's an average Joe. His name is Gideon. He's just an average Joe, just a farmer. And so I want to talk to you about Gideon and the Israelites. So background here, a little bit of backstory. The Israelites have been in slavery They've been freed from slavery. God has brought them out of Egypt. They're freed from slavery. And the Israelites have this tendency to go from being dependent on God to being independent from God. It's like, oh, God, I need you right now. Oh, actually, life's good right now. I don't need God. How many of us in here can relate? We're like, God, I really need you right now. I need prayers. My finances don't look good. God sends away. God provides. A week later, it's like, man, my finances are looking all right this weekend. I'm going to go to the lake. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be involved. God, I, you, you got me last week. How many of us can see ourselves tying into that? I think we can all agree that most of us, maybe, maybe it's, God, if I could just land this job. You land the job, it's like, thanks, God. I'll see you next time. God, if I could just have that girl. Come on, I prayed that prayer. Look at here, come on. Come on. I'm just saying, God, if I could just, God, God, if we could just get pregnant and have this kid. God, if we could just, it's always this next step, next step, next step. And then we go from just being dependent on God, I need you to, oh God, thank you. I'm kind of good right now though. And so we've got to find this balance where we're not getting independent from who God is. So the Israelites are here. They're, they're feeling independent from God. They don't need him. And they're, they're actually starving. The Midianites are, are stealing their crops. They're stealing their animals. They're taking everything. And so Israelites are like, okay, let's go back to what worked. Let's pray to God. So they're crying out to God. They're desperate for God. And so God sends an angel to Gideon. This is where we meet our hero of the story, Gideon. So God sends him. He's just an average guy, average Joe. Gideon's his name. And in Judges 6, 14, all of this is I'm going to, Reference is summarizing six and seven. Judges six and seven. Read it on your own time. I got seven minutes. Go in, he says, Judges 6, 14, and go in the strength that you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So the angel's talking to Gideon, and Gideon's like, boy, who are you talking to? Like, so we read on a little further. Judges 6, 15, Gideon is talking to the angel, and Gideon says, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. So I've got four stages that I want to run through, four stages of, of where I believe a lot of us all should fall in one of these four categories probably. But stage one is the you talking to me phase. That's stage one. We're in the you talking to me. How many of you have ever thought that when you like felt nudged or urged by God to do something? God, are you sure you're talking to me? Uh, weren't you talking to the person next to me on that? Like not me? I've, I've, I, if I'm the only one, that's fine. I've been there. Like, God, are you talking to me? So we're at a crossroads, much, much like most underdogs are going to incur. We have, we have a conflict that's going to require an action. So we're at a crossroads, and we have someone that is being told that, hey, you, yeah, I picked you. You need to go and do this. And I believe a lot of us in here are like, this is where we get off track because we want really badly to be the hero. I want to do it. God, I want to do this. And then God's like, all right, I pick you. And you're like, God, I was just messing around. Like, I was just doing what the Bible says the first part. I didn't want the second part where you told me to do it. Like, we get to that part, and it's like, oh, no. So we're this you talking to me phase. 
But I believe that we can hold strong in the fact that in Judges 6.16, it tells us, the Lord answered Gideon and said, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. So I can take comfort in knowing that, okay, God, you are talking to me, but I can take comfort knowing that I will be with you. God being the I in that situation, I will be with you. So that's stage one where we're, God, are you sure you're talking to me? Maybe some of us fall in there. Maybe some of us fall in stage two where God is patient with our faltering faith. When we look at the story of Gideon, Gideon is like this ultra doubting thing. So he's like, okay, God, I'll do it, but will you prove it to me by doing this? So God's like, okay, I'll show up and just do it. Oh, that's not what I planned. God showed up. I didn't expect that. So he's like, okay, God, how about if you do this? How many of those of us in here were like, okay, God, yeah, I'll do it, but I really need a sign. Or maybe we're like, okay, God, somebody's like, maybe Pastor Mark reaches out and says, hey, you want to preach on a Sunday? Let me pray about it. Like, that, that, that is the most common saying for, I'm probably going to say no, but I need more time to think of why, because I can't just be like, no. That's, let me pray about it, right? That's where most of us, some of us might fall in that, that faltering faith. We see that Gideon questions God, and God continues to answer him three different times. So now we get to Judges 7, and this is where we go from underdog to overcomer. I believe this is where we go from underdog to overcomer, but that only happens through Jesus. The only way we get there is through Jesus. Brooklyn, if you want to go ahead and come. So we get to stage three. This is probably my favorite stage just because it's when I believe that we get to see God at work. And this is my, our but God stage. We get to say, but God. We look at, look at Gideon. He's been given this seemingly impossible task. He's been given a task that he has been charged with to take on an army that is, theologians believed, up to be upwards of 120,000 people. I don't know about you all, but if I'm Gideon and I'm not a soldier, I'm like, 120,000 soldiers, me, I'm probably not signing up for that army. Like, I'm just not in. But Gideon, he forms an army, and they assemble 30,000 men. Okay, at least it's not like one on 120,000 anymore. We got a little better numbers. We're still only a quarter of the way there. But God's like, hey, actually, I'm going to need you to dial that number back a little bit. And this is where we all say, in, in, the, earth, in the earth and the world, it doesn't make sense. But God's like, hey, I need you to dial that back because in order for me to take credit and for the Israelites to not claim it as their own, I need it to be done by my power. So, so Gideon's like, okay, God. So he's like, hey, if you're scared, you can leave. Several guys leave. God's like, no, that's not enough, Gideon. We got to get more, get rid of more. God, what you talking about? It's 120,000. You just got rid of my guys. So it's like, all right, go get some water. They go get water and God's like, hey, you see those 300 over there? Those are, those are your, that's your army. That's where we get the story, the Gideon 300. 300, God, I just said 30,000. Now you got me to 300. There's 120,000 of them. But God, that's the but God part that's so good. Because the only way that Gideon's gonna win this, the only way that the world looks at it and says, this isn't possible. Maybe you've got a diagnosis, like, well, this is impossible. But God. We have the but God, and that's what our religion has, and that's what our belief has, is we have a but God, a God that steps in when we can't be there, and he does the things that we can't do. So talk about setting a scene for the perfect underdog story. 300 on 120,000. Let's go. I'm ready. So we get to stage four. Call it the comeback. See, the story ends something like this, and I believe if you haven't read this story, Judges 6 and 7, go read it, because I'm just summarizing it. Go read it. There's a lot of good stuff in there that I may have very well missed. God says, hey, Gideon, I know you're kind of worried. 
I know it doesn't make sense, so why don't you go to the, tonight and just listen. Just listen. I'll prove to you that I'm going to take care of this. So Gideon goes, they listen, the servant and him listen, and they hear these guys talking about a dream they had, and the guy's like, whoa, dude, that dream means that Gideon is going to take over us. I don't know about you all, if I'm reading that, if I'm not, I'm like, this is not looking good. So God gave Gideon this. He goes out, and Gideon says, hey, let's go. We're splitting up. There's 300 of us. Simple math. Let's do 100 one way, 100 that way, 100 this way. So they go, they surround the camp, and they smash their pots, they blow their trumpets, and it says that the soldiers began to wake up and were so disillusioned that they began to wake up and fight each other and kill each other. And it just like God to allow us to be a part of something and not even require us to do anything more than play a trumpet, to allow us to be a part of overcoming our enemies without having to do anything more than just a simple blowing of a trumpet. So in closing, I just had this thought. You and I, in this story, we look at this story, I believe you and I are, we're the Gideons. Maybe you're the Gideon in your marriage. Maybe you're the Gideon with your finances and your job right now. But you and I are the underdogs. But we don't have to do this alone. We can't win without God. That's the only way we do it is by, by accepting the love that God has and using that. So maybe you're in the you talking to me stage. You're asking God, are you sure you know what you're doing, God? Like picking me out of all these people? I'm not the person for you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel like just an average Joe. Or maybe God's answered you and you're still questioning your faith's faltering. God says, hey, I, I'm here. Or maybe you've bit the bullet and said, yeah, I'm going to do this. And you've had the doubts and God's cor corrected you. And you're like, okay, I'm going to take on this calling, God. Even though it doesn't seem possible, I'm going to take it and I'm going to run with it. All this is doing is, is setting a stage for a but God scenario. Lastly, we get to whatever I believe is everybody's favorite stage is the comeback stage where we get victory. And the only way we get that victory is through Jesus. The only way that we have that victory is through Jesus. So I want to close out. And what a, I mean, what an awesome job. We looked at the stories today of all, you know, everybody brought an amazing word. Give it up for them one more time. About an awesome word. And we can look all throughout the Bible, there's underdog stories. And I believe that today, all throughout this room, we have underdog stories in the room. God's called all of us to do something. Maybe it seems small, maybe it seems big, but God's called you to it. And the only way you get that victory, the only way as an underdog we receive that victory is through the love of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray. You guys can be take your seat for Jesus. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.